T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one... They're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Welcome to episode four of Fanbase, a deep dive into the greatest rivalry in sports. And in episode four, we welcome back Bobby Dickerson, the bench coach for the San Diego Padres. And we are going to talk to Bobby now about some of the experiences he's had as an Orioles third base coach for six years, playing in the American League East against the Red Sox and the Yankees. And hopefully he can uh, give us some insight into that. Um, Bobby, let me ask you, first of all, to start off, how is things out in San Diego right now with you and the team? Uh, we're preparing. Again, we're, prepar- we're preparing like it's going to be a season. Um, obviously, uh, we run out of time, but um, we're trying to get our, our guys uh, that are here voluntarily um, to, to get them ready. And, and we're approaching every day like we're going to play. You know, the end of episode three, uh, people who didn't get a chance to, to, to listen or see it, you talked about how when you were in the minors the Yankees, you did not really pay attention to the Red Sox. And I found that fascinating um, that you approached any Red Sox minor league team like anybody else. And I believe that. I mean, I believe you because it's just to say. So when did you, when did the Red Sox-Yankees rivalry start to mean anything to you or something you even paid any attention to? Well, I mean, once I got to Baltimore, my same passion about any team I played against took over, right? And being a former Yankee, especially as much respect as I have for the organization, one thing I learned there was, you know what, no player is ever going to be bigger than that organization. It's proven by when they sign free agents. Guys will cut their hair. They'll follow team rules, the different things that they'll do to play there. Um, so with that being said, um, I was never good enough to be a Yankee. I never got to the Yankees. I never got to coach with the Yankees after. So there was a little chip on my shoulder. So I wanted to beat them up bad. And, and you know, we had a nice run there in Baltimore where we would we would go into New York and beat up the Yankees. And we had their number. And we would beat up the Red Sox. And we had their number. And it was nice. And, and um, you know, after we would play the Yankees and, and, you know, win the series or something and leave, and the Red Sox would be coming in, then we'd watch it watch that rivalry go at it and and you could just see the game uh, you know on tv or, or just the highlights the different intensity you know it just to see that how, how they would go at each other 
What about as far as when you uh when you were in that stadium, you know, say you know you're in Fenway Park and you're sitting in the you know third base coach's box. Um you know, what what is as a baseball ruthless, fan, I mean you ruthless. your whole your whole what's that? Ruthless people behind me. Ruthless people. It doesn't I'm my sure. name is not good to coach third on the back of my jersey. Put it back. <laughs> I can imagine you know, I, I have seats, my season tickets are in left field right by the wall. I promise you one of those guys wasn't me, but I think I heard him. I could definitely hear him. Yeah. They, they get oh, yeah. Colorful. Do you ever give it back? No, I, I, I had too much to word with Buck. You know, he's he, I got to stay on Buck Showalter and stay into the game. Wayne Kirby, my counterpart at first base, I mean, he would give it back. I mean, it would be funny. Sometimes I'd look at him across the field and I'd start giving my signs and I'd see him engaged in some banter with a fan and it would – you know, and they love Kirby because he gives it back in a funny way. And um, I just I just had so much going on with getting my signs from Buck and, and paying attention to what was actually happening in the game that uh, I, I, for the most part, I usually hear it as a roar, but sometimes it gets really personal and really deep. Is it the same thing at Yankee Stadium or is this just exclusive to Fenway? Exactly, identical. The one thing about Yankee Stadium that was a little better for me was people were further away from me. And red, you know, at Fenway, they were right in my pocket. So uh, I could hear them, like, you know, wearing me out. Like, Yankee Stadium, I could hear them, but it was a little more distant. Um, and, again, at the, the new stadium, I wasn't ever fortunate to be in the old stadium. The new stadium, I was so far away from the stands, it, it would never feel as personal as it did in Fenway. So we'll let the PG-13 put it together, I guess, in terms of uh, Dickerson being your last name. But is there anything that is – uh, semi or even appropriate for the audience that you can share in terms of some of the stuff that got thrown at you? I mean, just picture when you're in elementary school, the things that they would use with your name, like <laughs> the bullies. I mean, it was every single possible version of, of my last name minus a lot of the letters. <laughs> so, you know, this yeah, is, it was, it was interesting. And then it, and they would and they would say things other than my last name. Now, don't get me wrong; it was it was ruthless, and it got worse. As about the fifth inning, sixth inning, it gets yeah, worse because they get all drunk. Let me, I want to ask you. Get, a get pops, yeah. I want to ask you a serious question before we get to the rivalry stuff because Adam Jones, you know, and Tory Hunter, they've talked about the racial element in Boston. I'm curious, you know, as a sort of a third, as a as a Caucasian white American and observing that. Was it, and I'm a native Bostonian, it's nothing offends me, don't worry about it, and I, I'm a completely inclusive person, but was it worse in Boston when it came to race in other places? Again, I, I'm not a black man, so I, I, I didn't ever, like, absolutely hear it over my shoulder, right? But I know Adam was kind of brutalized um, while he was there in center field, especially a lot of things being said to him. Um and it was pretty rough. I will say I, I never saw that reaction from Adam in most of the other places that I've been to. Uh, so obviously it was happening a little more intensely there, um, which infuriated all of us. Um, and we were hyper, our, our senses were hypered, hyper to it. Um, so like in between innings when I wouldn't be coaching third, um, you know, whatever was coming out of the stands, you, you'd be aware of. And I know Buck Showwater was passionate that way, and he wouldn't he wouldn't hesitate to get someone thrown out of the stands. We had security in the dugout, and he would just point out a person and 
uh, anything that got really bad, it would throw them out of there. But I'll say this, it was, it got bad uh, because of Adam's reactions. I know it was, I know it was hurting him pretty bad and he's one really hell of a guy, you know, as I got to know him, he treated me great and was a, a wonderful man. Clearly that's a serious topic of the day. And I think it's important. And I actually really appreciate your, your response uh, uh, because I think it's important for all of us. I mean, we're all white men here and we have privilege whether we acknowledge it or not. But I think that for us to talk about it is important and to acknowledge those, those differences is important. So I, I appreciate that, that commentary, you know, be, let's get back to baseball for a second. When it, you know, this podcast was sort of born out of the Yankees Red Sox rivalry. And I grew up a, a huge Red Sox fan and I went to, you know, games in the ALCS in, in 04 and I went to a World Series game in every single series. I was as big a fan as, as they are. When you look at sports, I guarantee you, you're a sports fan of all sports. And do you see a, another rivalry that anywhere approaches Red Sox and Yankees? And if so, state the case. No. I don't, I don't, I don't see that. There's nothing like it as far as my experience. And again, I've never personally experienced it at the, at the major league level or even, even in the minor leagues. I just was aware of it being a Yankee, um, aware of it, uh, because of, like I said, the reporting of it and everything, but just, um, being there and, and, and going to eat dinner in Boston, going to eat dinner in New York or, um, you know, Boston, you, it seemed like I could feel it a little more because wherever I'd be eating, um, the conversation would come up about, you know, them damn Yankees, basically. You know, something something would be being said. But in New York, I guess maybe it was so big and spread out, I could actually be at dinner somewhere and not hear a baseball conversation. It seemed like in Boston, everywhere, uh, we stayed there in downtown. And I'm telling you, everywhere I was, it was constant baseball talk at every restaurant, at every and and I mean it was like hated Yankees and and I would hear it uh, when I was a you know coach for the Orioles. <laughs> it's they definitely don't like the Yankees, that's for sure. Well, wow. you yeah. talking up. That's 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 pretty amazing. Well, I mean, I've been at I've been at games where you know they're not even playing the Yankees and they'll start saying Yankees suck or the Yankees fans will start saying the Red Sox suck and they're not even playing the Red Sox. So it's uh right. it's uh it's interesting. Yeah, and Bobby, you were. You were at you coached in Baltimore, where sometimes in couple some years you'd have more Yankee fans or Red Sox fans in the stands at a home game. It felt like sometimes. Well, that was honestly when we first got to Baltimore after sixteen straight losing seasons there. One of the things Buck kept talking about and changing our culture was we wanted to get to where our stadium was black and orange instead of red or navy blue. You know, so it was a goal, and and I'm gonna tell you when we got good. It got tougher for people to get seasons. I mean, to get tickets there, and it was unbelievable. The fans of Baltimore were incredible, but the product had to be there for them, you know. Right. And um, uh, and it was it was, you know, we'd be playing, and I know towards the end there, when we were again, we we had our way with those guys for a few years there, and the, the few Yankees fans would be, "Let's go Yankees" in Baltimore, and it would just get drowned out by, you know, "Let's go Orioles," it, but. Right. But when I first got there, it would just be overwhelming. It felt like we were at a away game. And then you know? after you left, it went, back, it went back the other way after you left because, you know, we – I have three children, and we did the math. It cost us less to drive to Baltimore, get a room at the Hilton, and go to the Oriole game against the Red Sox and it was to Fenway for five people. 
So we did that twice, and there was no doubt. Oh, I got a train coming by. Um, there was no doubt in my mind that there were more Red Sox fans the night we were there than, than Oriole fans. Yeah, that's I figured that. I mean, once it got pretty bad there at the end, we lost 100 games that my last year there, and they let us all go. Um, and you could just see it coming. I mean, if, if you can't sustain it, you know, and, and you got to find a way to sustain it, when you, when you can't just constantly uh, keep getting the biggest and best all the time, um, you know, we had a, we did a nice job of getting really good, young, controllable guys, and we made a run with them. Um, Buck and Dan Duquette and really Andy McPhail did a wonderful job in Baltimore before he left and uh, got, a, you know, Adam Jones, Chris Tillman, and one, one deal. And, you know, that ended up being a really bona fide move there. And both guys ended up being really good for us when we were – when we were playing well, but, um, you know, those tickets were hard to get. And I tell you what, it was nice to have home games and it sucked to be at home playing the Yankees and Red Sox. And there were more people there at our stadium. It sucked. And it was a, it was kind of a thing. Again, it, it found a way to put a chip on our shoulders to try to play better and, and, um, you know, give our fans something to come to the game for. How can you not be pissed off? You know, you're sitting there in your home stadium. Well, I want to talk about something about um, something you got to experience as far as being at a game. You had the distinct opportunity to be on the field when Derek Jeter's final home game at Yankee Stadium. Um, not many people could say that. Uh, not many people could say they were actually at the game, let alone on the field and experience it that up close. Um, what was that moment like for you to kind of be there and be witnessing part of history? Yeah, it was it was awesome. I tell you, you know, I'm again just talking to me and getting to know me. Now on, on this, you hear my John. You've known me a long time, but I'm I've always been a competitive man. I mean, I'm just about winning. I want to win. I'll do anything to win. And at that point, um, we were going to the playoffs. At that point, that game, and um, uh, we ended up falling down behind the Yankees uh, in the ninth inning, and and you know we ended up tying it four down four in the ninth, and we tied it, and um, you know we went in extra innings. So I was just focused on winning the game but as the inning unfolded it was just amazing because um i could see it just i saw it happening like you you know you've been around baseball so long you could just see it start to unfold and went all oh, and the matchup was perfect although you know our pitcher in the game we were pretty much out of pitchers we at that point we had a cutter thrower in the game ball kind of running away and jeter likes to shoot the ball to the right side and i'm witnessing it all and make deals Hits to right field. Here comes Richardson. Here's the throw from Marquez. Richardson is safe. Derek Jeter ends his final game with a walk-off single. Derek Jeter, where fantasy becomes reality. Did you have any doubt? Exciting as it was, I was also, you know, didn't want to lose this ball game. And and sure enough, when he got the hit and they won the ball game. Everybody stayed in the dugout and was watching. I just kind of threw my stuff and went up the runway. Like, I didn't even want to watch. You know, that's how how bad it was for me. And then I get in the clubhouse, and I'm like, nobody's in the clubhouse. You know, and I was like, wow, man, this is, you know, it's Derek Jeter's final game. It was pretty special, unbelievable. I got to get over this loss real quick tonight. And I went back out and kind of watched it and soaked it in a little bit. And, and I saw my friend, my best friend, Gerald Williams, walk on the field. He's really good friends with, with Jeter. And I and, uh, just try to think of what they must have been feeling at that point. And 
knowing what I put into my career and how I feel going to work every day and then trying to imagine, you know, what Derek Jeter was feeling at that point and what all his family and his close friends were feeling and what he did for our city. And, and it just, it was, it was really a special night actually looking back at it. And it was these little boxes that, you know, that were given out like a little shoe box with Derek Jeter, you know, final game thing. My son still has it on his counter. Uh, I mean, on his, um, uh, yeah, yeah. In, in his bedroom, he still has it. It's pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. Part of history. Part. Of history. Let me ask you another question. Is uh, you know, you say stuff you know pretty cool. I mean, you've you've obviously been a part of a lot of different games and scenarios. Anything else stick out in your head as far as you know against the Yankees or the Red Sox that might you know be interesting as far as uh, you know to Yankee or Red Sox folklore or something people might not know. Well, that you've I mean, been. The, you know, when I think of the Red Sox, I think of Poppy. I mean, you know. I, I can't say I necessarily loved how he played the game. I couldn't stand the walking up to the plate. I couldn't stand him not running out of ball when he's making out. But my God, did I did I fear him walking to the plate, right? It, I have not played, been in any games where I've felt a more pressure-producing uh, type player than Big Poppy. It was unbelievable how many times he would just come through. He just, um, I was about to allude to that a while ago when I'm coaching third and, and electricity gets worse in the fifth inning and they're wearing me out. Even when we were, again, when we had our good years, when we beating them and a lot of the teams, when you got them in the seventh inning down four and we're beating them by four, you could feel it be over with, but not in, not in Fenway. You could just feel it happening. I'd be darned if, if, if it was a situation where he had a chance to tie or win the game, he came through every time, every time against us, it seemed like. So we would just hope, okay, Big Poppy's going to get the bat here and is only going to do two runs instead of tie the game, you know, and, and because he was going to produce and it was, and it happened over and over and over. Um, we used to try to just find a lefty in our bullpen just to be one to, Hey, if you can get Big Poppy out, you can make the team. Basically, so Brian Mattis did that for a while for us, um, you know, and he had his number pretty good. Do you remember him in Minnesota? You know, because I mean, the story we tell over and over, you know, Minnesota, they didn't, they, they let him go, and the Red Sox got him for 1.25 million. It's like basically a cup of coffee. Well, we can, we can tell stories about players like that. We talked about a little bit as minor leaguers. You don't, you really don't know until it plays out who guys are, right? So, if you're in a situation like, like say the Padres now or any other major league team and you need a certain type of player and you have three or four guys in that position, let's just say we need a shortstop and we got three or four DH slash first basemen, and we're trying to make a decision. It happens all the time. You make the wrong decisions, you know, they go, God dog, man, wish we had him back to DH. But at that particular time, you're like, okay, I don't know. I don't remember who they had and what decisions they were making at that point. But, when you look at Big Poppy, he was a one-dimensional type player. When it comes to, you know, he he's not going to go out there and run out there and play defense at the highest, highest level that you would like. But he was a hell of a, hell of a, hell of a hitter, obviously, as history proves to us. Um, and in the atmosphere, maybe, um, he maybe needed to play in a little more pressure-packed atmosphere to make him who he was. And, and I know players like that that just seem to flourish in certain cities. 
I go to J.J. Hardy. You know, we got J.J. Hardy for you know, and then J.J. Hardy's career was not like Big Poppy's, but we got J.J. JJ Hardy for hardly anything, right? And he ended up being a really solid 30 home run shortstop, uh, all-star team, three straight gold gloves for us. And he was basically let go. I mean, they kept overlooking him. Two teams overlooked him. And, and for me, he's my favorite player I've ever coached. So um, I see it happen all the time. But, like, looking at Big Poppy, um, uh, you know, how they, they – you look back and you got a blessing. I mean, go go back to the bigger one, Babe Ruth. I mean, you don't know who you're letting go. You don't know till it, till it's over with, you know. And that's the beauty about it. People love to, you know uh, – have TV shows and 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 talk about what's going to happen and and argue about it. That was the stupidest move. That's the smartest move. Only history tells us what was the smart move. I always say, if you stay healthy, you got a chance, right? To stay right, healthy, right. stay healthy, keep grinding. Someone keep giving you an opportunity. Uh, you figure it out. I mean, look at Jose Batista. Um, you can see that Josh Donaldson. So many players, you know, just. Uh, a new team and uh, look at Turner over in LA. And I mean, I had Turner in AAA with the Orioles and I loved him. My kind of player, gamer, scrappy. I never saw him hit 35 home runs a year in the big leagues. So um, people like to try to figure it out. I mean, we keep talking about it here in San Diego. Uh, what did he do? Did he make a swing adjustment? Did the right, let me tell you something. It was a conglomeration of everything. And, and a lot of people like to try to put it in a nice little bow and a nice little, uh, well, this is what happened. You know, he raised his hand two inches. He shortened his stride length. He, they always like to try to give an exact reason what it was. But in my personal opinion, I think it's a conglomeration of everything. It's it's just everything that that he's been through in his career. Maybe a little chip got bigger on his shoulder. Maybe um, the fans embraced him better. You know, and he found a home. And um, well, gosh, Tony, you got to get the chance. I mean, I was a Division three college hockey player. I had four guys in front of me just to play a stupid college hockey game that meant nothing. And I never thought I'd see the light of day. Imagine being a fourth shortstop in an organization, having a grind it every day, not knowing if you'd ever get a chance, not knowing if anybody's even freaking watching you. Like, to me, like, if you can work through that and have it work out for you, you've got something that I don't have. To me, that that's, that is so hard to do in life, to, to have – Four people. I did the same thing with quarterback depth charts at Notre Dame or Alabama. It's like you're number four. You're Brady. You come in there. You're number four. four. How the blank do you feel like you're going to get a chance? Like that to me is yeah. why sports is amazing. Yeah, sports. I agree. I mean, I look back at my personal life, and the fear of failure was there. I didn't want to go home and tell my dad I failed, and and I would just do anything to stay employed. And I just kept. You know, and I and I know the chip on the shoulder. I mean, if you look at a lot of, I mean, Brady, when I think of Tom Brady, that's a good one. I mean, gosh darn, man. You talk about put a chip on that guy's shoulder. And let me tell you something, he's probably got it again this year. Totally. I mean, he's never lost it. He's going to have it on his shoulder this year. Every every snap he takes, he's out to prove something. Drew Brees did the same thing in New Orleans. He basically saved the city. And, and again, you know, it wasn't only Drew Brees. It was a lot of the players on his team. But as a Saints fan, uh, I'm going to tell you, when he got to town uh, and Sean Payton got to town, it changed a whole lot of things. Who you think as far as, you know, the best pitcher, best player kind of in the game is? One guy one year could be just incredible and the next year not have that same year. You know, it's that's what is so wonderful about baseball. I raised the question, why is a season 
considered. You know, he hit 340 this year with 30 homers, blah, 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 blah. Why is it spring training, end of spring training to World Series, right? Why isn't – because you hear so many times, gosh, dang, his first half he hit 450, and the second half he didn't get a hit. If you look at statistics, you can find minutes in every single player where they arguably are the best player playing for that specific time, right? You can go for a month. Oh, God, that month he was the best player in the league. For those two months, July and August, but he didn't sustain it. Now, why don't they sustain it? Those are things that we don't, you know, wish I knew. And then when I look back at, okay, what is a career? Is it three years? Is it 10 years? Like what makes a, a guy so great? How do we know we not, we're not letting a guy go after three years and he hits arbitration and he's not worth it anymore? His value, modern day values are down the way we run things now. And he goes away and he's Justin Turner about to, about to find it. You know, he's about to find it and become one of the greatest players, but he doesn't get to play anymore. So uh, when it comes to who's the greatest players, for me, it, it's it's really tough. The ones that sustain it, you know, because they're all really good big leaguers. I'm telling you, I've been doing this a long time, and these guys in the major leagues are really good. Are they better than when you broke in? Um, you know, the, the – the athletic ability and everything is definitely – there's a lot more. Like I, I tell guys now, I never heard anything about pulling a muscle. I didn't hear anything about hydration or how to eat and, and all these different things, our nutrition and all that. And, and uh, it's so much more involved. I used to – see, it's funny because a lot of my ideas that I used to complain about, um, they're taking care of now in modern baseball. I, I used to complain. I go, okay, I'm property of the New York Yankees. They want me to be a major leaguer, but when the season ends – I drive home to Louisiana and get a job on Monday. The season ends on Monday, and I have to go get a job. So I would be delivering beer or working on a construction crew or whatever I'd be doing two days after my minor league season ended, right? And then they would have instructional league. And, again, they would pick 30 their best players. How right are they with those 30s? Typically, it's your 30 or 40 guys' highest-picked players. But Don Mattingly, how great was he late pick? Right. So I used to say all the time, I go, man, the investment should be more year round on the development of a player. Right. To, to build a player. And, and I think nowadays we do a better job of that. So I think athletically, skill wise, uh, strength wise, all those things are definitely better. But the way the game was played back in the day was much more about the ins and outs of the chess part of baseball, winning the game. You know, now it's. Uh, um, a hitter goes up and tries to reproduce his a swing 12 times a night. And that's, that's how the game's played. It's not this at bat is different from my first at bat because the situation is now the eighth inning and we're down one and the guys on second base and no outs. I need to move the runner. It's not, they just say, okay, if I get my a swing off and I catch a ball, I hit a two run homer instead of solo homer or um, so it's not as, it's not as driven as to execution. I remember after signing with the Yankees, I went back to play a Nickel State alumni game. And in an alumni game, after one year with the Yankees, there was a guy on second base, and I pushed the ground ball to the right side to move the runner in an alumni game. That was how my brain was brainwashed with playing baseball. Like, I didn't even, like, attempt to hit a double or a homer. I got jammed on a ground ball to second just to move the runner because this is what the Yankees were ingraining me, how to play the game, hmm. move runners, 
execute in different parts of the game, understand where you are in the game, look at the scoreboard, tells you what's happening, all these different things. But for the most part, I'm not saying it doesn't exist at all, but for the most part, our industry now is about, you know, catch it if it comes to you and, you know, swing hard 12 times a night and strike out if you can, if you do. And if you don't hit a homer, I mean, if you don't strike out, you hit a homer, it's better than hitting a single. A walk is better than a single and a strikeout is no different than a flyout, hmm. you know. Well, I like the game better. I like, I like the game better when you played it. It was a cleaner. It was a. It was a for a baseball purist type person. It was a neater game. Exactly of of what I'm saying. It's like, okay, it took a lot more different, you know, um, skills, different job responsibilities to play it. Then, now, if you can really, really, really hit, right, and and produce an at bat from you know. You can play. I mean, you just – and you're going to get 600 at-bats, you know. Play a little defense and, and get that A swing off, you know, 12 times a night and hit 35 homers and strike out 250 times. And and the, the numbers prove that wins more games, I guess. That's what it proves. I'm still reluctant to see because, like I said, where do those numbers start and end, you know. Like we say, well, this guy's numbers is this. Well, what if he hit 20 of those homers in a month? Like, how valuable are those 30 homers now when the other five months he was nothing? When when does it – when do those numbers cut off? Like, today we're playing the Yankees and we just need a sack fly in the eighth inning and we get three hacks at the fence and a punch out, you know. Um, just a different – just a whole different game uh, than it was 20 years ago. Well, right now, I hope we have any sorts of games right now the way things are going, but – we're very glad that you have to join us, Bobby. We really appreciate it. And we hope that you get a chance to get on the field and we get to see you on TV and see Major League Baseball again. And uh, once again, thank you for joining us. And for everybody listening, you can find us on Apple, iTunes, and Spotify. But for now, this is Fan Base, a deep dive into the greatest rivalry in sports. We'll catch you on the next episode. Bobby, I'm going to call for some freebies. I'm going to call for some freebies when you hit Boston, just so you know. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you had to get in line. That line's long for them freebies, man. Hey, I didn't know I had so many friends till I got to the big leagues. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only twenty-five dollars a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile, get four iPhone 15s on us, and four lines for twenty-five bucks per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.